When we hear the word government, we usually don't have positive thoughts. Many of us resonate with the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan's assessment, when he said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But what we're looking at in our text, and I hope you'll look at it very carefully in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we're looking at a very different type of government. Because what we're speaking of here is what was prophesied was the kingdom of Christ being inaugurated. And what Isaiah prophesies in verse 6 and 7 is he prophesies the reigning of Christ on high. That all things have been put under his feet to use the language of Paul in Ephesians 1. That truth that Christ is reigning, that he is the head of the government should terrify unbelievers. We're told in our text that the government is now on his shoulders. Whether you're talking about civil government or church government, Scripture goes to great lengths to say Christ is ruling over both. Jesus is king. In fact, Psalm 2 tells us that the Father has installed Christ as his king and that even all civil rulers are commanded to confess their loyalty to him, to kiss the Son, the psalmist writes. So our text, notice in Isaiah 9 verse 7, tells us that Jesus is seated on the throne of his ancestor David. And since Jesus is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, his kingdom cannot help but be the best regulated society. Look at the character for just a moment of his rule in verse 7. We are told that it will be marked by peace as of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What we're being told hundreds of years in advance, as the kingdom of Christ spreads and triumphs, it will bring peace in its wake. For the kingdom of Christ, we're told, remember he's the prince of peace, the kingdom of Christ is righteousness, joy, and peace. We're told as well that this kingdom will have order. Notice again in verse 7, that when Christ takes his seat on this throne, he will order it. You know that something is not of Christ if it's disorderly. We are told in 1 Corinthians 14 in that great extended passage where, where Paul is clarifying how you know what the work of the Holy Spirit is. And Paul writes, God is not the author of disorder, but commands that everything be done decently and in order. That is the mark of the kingdom of Christ, that he orders things. He brings order out of disorder. And then look at verse 7 as well, that another character of, characteristic of his rule is judgment and justice. All through the Old Testament, our God gives requirements for rulers that they must be marked by courage and integrity, and they must be a terror to evildoers and promote righteousness, that they must promote judgment and justice. Our Jesus spoke through his mouthpiece, Amos, in Amos 5, and said to corrupt rulers, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. But what I want to focus on tonight, oh so briefly, is I want to focus on one element, perhaps two sides of a coin, two elements perhaps, but this element of Christ's kingdom, what makes it so glorious. Look very carefully at verse 7. Isaiah prophesies, again, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, he says that the duration of the Messiah's throne 
will be forever. Now he's going to immediately in just a moment talk about the increase of his kingdom, but he talks first of his duration. He says there will be no end. In other words, there will be no term limits on the reign of Christ. By the way, this is about as much as I will tell you of my politics. I am absolutely for term limits on every single office in America. I'm completely for them. Maybe one term would be good. But uh, there are no term limits on the reign of Christ. We're used to speaking in the past tense of kingdoms, whether we speak of Nineveh, Babylon, Egypt, Carthage, Greece, Rome. A few years ago, I got to have with our missionary Alonzo Ramirez a guided tour in Lima, Peru to the Museum of the Inca Kingdom. I've been to museums in several countries, several places, but no place more fascinating. The Museum of the Kingdom of the Incas. The Kingdom of the Incas was established in 1438. It was the largest empire in all the Americas before Columbus entered the New World. It stretched across Colombia and Peru and Ecuador and Argentina and Bolivia and much further. All of this kingdom had a common language, Quechua. It had a common religion, the worship of the sun god. It had a capital city, Cusco, Peru. It had stunning architecture. It had an extensive road system, a, an overarching system of taxation. It lasted 140 years. And then it was crushed by Spain. But notice what the promise is about this king's reign. Look carefully at verse 7. There will be no end. The Lord is promising that this kingdom, this Messiah's kingdom will endure forever. But then I want you to notice what else we are told. The growth of the kingdom is progressive. And this seems to be an aspect of the prophecies and promises about our Christ that many overlook or want to turn a deaf ear to. Notice carefully, right here in the exact same text that we've been reveling in for the last several Sunday mornings, delighting in those great titles, we are told that the growth of this king's kingdom will be progressive. Look at what we are told in verse 7. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. I've been wanting to baptize a little increase. I was hoping perhaps tonight we'd have an increase slum. One of my American church history heroes was Increase Mather, son of Cotton Mather. And when asked why he was naming his son Increase, he said, because of the increase of Christ's kingdom, there will be no end. So that's just a word. We have several moms who are carrying children. I'm putting in my order right now. So far, the best I've ever baptized was a little girl named Thankful. But Increase, I think, would top that. Well, notice what the prophecy is. The increase of Christ's kingdom will be no end. Right now, of course, is that time when the kingdom of God is currently leavening the world. And even as the weeds and the wheat are growing up together. But <clears throat> the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae about this very issue. Because you ask, is this prophecy being fulfilled? Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. You heard the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has in all the world, and everywhere it is bringing forth fruit. When Paul writes these words to the church in Colossae, only 25 years had passed since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But by that time, there were hundreds of thousands of believers in hundreds and thousands of villages and cities all over the Mediterranean region. Just as Isaiah prophesied, 
the kingdom of the Messiah was increasing. The number of Christians multiplied despite constant opposition, fierce persecution. The church's message spread by the lips of unlearned fishermen and farmers. It spread despite internal problems. Think of just some of the problems we know of that the early church had. Heresies, wolves inside the church and wolves coming from the outside. We read of one huge problem that the church was easily and rapidly able to solve, and that was the care for their own poor and racial discrimination. But after that problem was solved by the election of the first diaconate, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read this. And so the word of God continued to spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The church is going to increase. The church spread not only despite internal problems, it spread despite external persecutions, the killing of its leaders, whether it's James, the brother of John in Acts 12, or the arrest and imprisonment of Peter. But the close of Acts 12 brings that steady drumbeat. The word of God grew and multiplied. It spread despite entering cultures where there was demonic opposition and entrenched non-Christian religions, such as when Paul comes to Ephesus in Acts 19, and he is fiercely withstood by pagan religion. But at the close of the narrative, we read these familiar words. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. It increased, just as Isaiah promised. From day one of the apostolic era, the rapid progress of the gospel has amazed social analysts and observers. Writing in 150 AD, Justin Martyr wrote this. There is no people, Greek or barbarian, however ignorant they may be of art or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander in wagons, among whom prayers aren't offered in the name of Jesus. Tertullian wrote 50 years later, We are but of yesterday, yet we already fill your cities, your islands, your palaces, and your senate. We have left you only your pagan temples. The marvel of the gospel is how rapidly it spread. Perhaps you're thinking, that was then, this is now. What about today? Today, 1995 years after the resurrection, there are 2.4 billion, with a B, billion confessing Christians on the planet. Today, the Bible has been translated into 2,470 languages. That's probably increased since the last time I checked. Wycliffe has another 1,200 languages in process. Today, the newest churches, Korea, for example, are the most aggressive in sending missionaries to other countries. Nearly 3,000 people believed on the day of Pentecost, believed by Ethiopian eunuch and Gentile jailers. And since then, since the day of Pentecost, not a day has gone by for 2,000 years without people believing the gospel for the first time and exercising, exercising saving faith in Christ. But this great harvest of increase that Isaiah prophesied, of people coming to saving faith in Christ, sweeping men and women into the kingdom, has been increasing at breakneck speed in the last hundred years. In 1900, 20% of the world's population were Buddhists. Today, that figure stands at 4%. In the 20th century, the Church of Jesus Christ saw massive conversions in Asia, South America, and Africa. 
1920, there were only 200,000 Christians in South Korea. Today, there are over 17 million. There are three times as many Presbyterians in Korea as there are in the United States. If you want to find a good Presbyterian church, you'll have better fortune going to Seoul than you will to New York City. Under cruel government persecution, the Protestant church in Vietnam has mushroomed. In the province of Lao Cai alone, the church has grown from zero known Christians in 1991 to today 280,000. Recent State Department estimates say that there are as many Christians today in China as there are Buddhists. The Dalits, that, that caste, the lowest caste in India, also known by you as the untouchables, the Dalits, are coming to Christ by the village. The Roma, you know them better as the gypsies of Eastern Europe, are flooding into the kingdoms. I've preached in one of their congregations in Bulgaria. Such phenomena, by the way, that it's the lowest class who are sweeping into the kingdom. Such phenomena should never surprise us when we remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. He's chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised. That's who God has chosen to bring to nothing the powers that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Philip Jenkins writes in his marvelous book, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. He carefully studies the trends of growth in the international Christian church, and he points out, based on hard data, that by the year 2050, the Christian church will outnumber 3.4 billion Christians. And the great news about <clears throat> these exploding national churches in third world countries is that they are far more aggressively mission-minded and evangelistic than the American church is. The African church is planting churches every week in London. The Korean church is sending missionaries to Los Angeles and Las Vegas. One of them met in our building in Las Vegas when we were there. The church in Singapore is sending missionaries to Vancouver, Canada, and they're effective. Over half of the Protestant churches in Boston that met today worship in a language other than English. Within 100 years, the nations with the largest Christian population will not be the U.S. It will be China, the Philippines, and Nigeria, which has, Nigeria has 20 million baptized, conservative, Bible-believing Episcopalians. The words of Revelation 7 become more and more reality. When John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isaiah's prophecy of increase is being fulfilled. Should this rapid expansion surprise us? No. Remember the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 where the Lord told Abraham to count the stars and says, so shall your descendants be. He was speaking of us, not descendants necessarily by the flesh, but those who have saving faith as that of Abraham. Should we be surprised? Nope. God promised. In Christ's parables of growth in Matthew 13, Jesus predicted growth. He promised 
in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail over it. This is one of the most encouraging yet most misunderstood promises in all the Bible. Think very carefully. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What did Jesus really promise in this verse? Most believers missed it. Christians have been so affected by pessimillennialism that they unwittingly turned the verse upside down to read, read, hell will not prevail against the gates of the church. They visualize this passage as teaching that the church is huddling safe behind her gates while being pounded relentlessly by the hordes of hell. But listen to the words carefully. It's the gates of hell that are being relentlessly pounded. And they will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church's evangelistic and missionary efforts. Christ is commanding the church to march onward and overcome the gates of hell with the power and truth of the gospel. And best of all, Christ promises his church will be victorious. Such clear and optimistic teaching of scripture directly challenges the teachings of many today. The doomsayers who would teach that since the time of Christ's first advent, the world grows darker and darker and the church grows smaller and smaller. This unfortunate idea flies directly in the face of numerous Bible texts which promise the widespread thorough victory of the gospel. The first, of course, is Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of the kingdom of Jesus, there will be no end. But think about others. Consider Isaiah's prophecy in 11, Isaiah 11-9, where Isaiah writes, The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The psalmist writes in Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Jehovah, and all the kindreds of nations shall worship him. Of course, you know that the Bible already teaches that Jesus is reigning, that he's reigning from heaven. Earth is his footstool, according to Acts 2. The earth is Christ. We're seated with him in heavenly places as he progressively defeats his enemies throughout history. You know the promise from Psalm 110, the most repeated promise of the Old Testament by New Testament writers, that Jesus will reign at his Father's right hand until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. You know the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all the nations. In the Great Commission, <clears throat> we're hearing the echoes of God's promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, we hear that promise that's fulfilled in Revelation 7 around the heavenly throne that there is a great multitude that no man can quantify from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Think about what the Lord did on the day of Pentecost according to Acts 2 when he saved thousands of men from so many nations on one day. This is one of the marks of the new covenant that the gospel would run. It would be taken outside of Israel to Asia, Africa, Europe, that the previously despised Gentiles would hear, receive, and be enfolded into the people of God. All in fulfillment of that one word in Isaiah 9-7. Increase. There is to be no nation left without a clear, extensive proclamation of the good news. Whether it's North Korea or Yemen or Pakistan or Iran or Vietnam or Libya. Because Revelation 5 is clear to tell us there will be elect from Every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue in heaven praising the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This gospel optimism has been the understanding of greatest Christians. John Calvin wrote, the kingdom of Christ will be glorious, not only before God, but in the eyes of men. We must march forward with a firm belief of gospel success, and he will surpass all our hopes. Calvin continues, God will extend the boundaries of the kingdom of his son far and wide. We must not judge by the appearances of our day, but by God's promise, for that is a rock on which we can stand. Isaac Watts, who is the most published hymn writer in our hymnal, his hymns breathe this gospel optimism. We sang joy to the world a moment ago, a setting of Psalm 98, which exults in the Savior's reign and of Christ's kingdom expanding and its blessing flowing to all the nations. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his monumental History of the Work of Redemption, Edwards wrote, The kingdom of Jesus is displacing the kingdom of Satan foot by foot, step by step, until the consummation of all things. Edwards concludes, The visible kingdom of Satan is being pulled down, and the kingdom of Christ is being built on top of its ruins. Tonight. Tonight, as you look at those words in Isaiah 9-7, and you hear this promise, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Tonight, banish all fears about world affairs or even the events of our nation that they are somehow reeling out of control and evil will triumph. Christ is on his throne. Just as the prophet Isaiah foretold, the government is on his shoulders. Our God reigns. Sleep well tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your promise repeated over and over again that your son and his kingdom and his rule will triumph. And so we pray that you'd keep us from all pessimism and melancholy and being downcast about the future of the church and that we would walk and live by this promise and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name.